Thank you for joining us today on a virtual view. Today, I'm joined by Eliza Brader, a digital equity specialist for the city of Bloomington and the director of Just Us Civil Rights, a nonprofit focused on human rights advocacy work. Thank you so much for joining me today. So glad to be here. As a disabled person, telehealth was super important to me during the pandemic. So I like to include it in my digital advocacy work and, you know, I was excited to come on and participate in the conversation. Yeah, we're excited to talk today. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself? So I am a disabled and queer person. I have a genetic disease called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And because of it, I've had a major spinal reconstruction. And then I'm ADHD and I identify as bisexual or sapphic. And I'm not from around here. So I'm from the state of New Mexico. I grew up in a rural small town trying to be kind of intersectionally disadvantaged. And that small town is what led me into my current work, which is in public policy. I have a master's degree in policy analysis and social policy systems from here in Bloomington. Being a student at O'Neill and working for the city as part of that degree program, I kind of started to fall in love with the way that Bloomington is trying to do things. It was an opportunity to go back and work for the city. And I had worked with the IT director on a previous digital equity project, actually, under my degree program. And he was a great guy and he needed some civil rights kind of navigation assistance work. So it seemed like a perfect fit. Yeah, that's awesome. So digital equity is something that has a bunch of definitions. We could talk about it all day, but how would you, how would you define digital equity? For me, digital equity is people having what they need to thrive. So a lot of times in digital equity, they say, you know, access, but as a disabled person and doing some activism in that area, access is like a dirty word for me. Because my access needs really shouldn't be defined by people who don't live my life. So having it, having what they need, which entails like listening to the communities and listening to the people to figure that out. Right. And I I, I do like that you say what they need as opposed to give everyone the same thing. Because I feel like a lot of the time when we talk about digital equity, people confuse it with like equality, like everyone needs the exact same thing. And that's not necessarily true. That is such a pet peeve of mine, honestly. <laughs> the equality, equity swap. Yeah. Equity is everyone according to their need. And equality is this idea that, you know, somebody who, for instance, doesn't have like metal down their neck like I do is going to need the same things that I need in order to be successful in a workplace. And that's just not the case or even just in everyday life. So why is that something that's so important for just general folks to understand? I think it's most important for people to understand because of this thing I call the false dichotomy of scarcity. Mm -hmm. So people assume that there's only so much help that can be given. And as a result, they think that they nobody else should get more than them because then one day there won't be enough for them. I think that we can innovate in ways to provide people what they need and use like community action to support systems in a way that we really can have that like true equity. Mm -hmm. So just trying to help people break that down 
which a lot of it is out of like poverty trauma and, you know, the trauma of growing up rural. So even like money doesn't give you access, that kind of thing. Trying to break some of that down and help people trust that access can happen and can be maintainable for everyone. Yeah, it's a big part of why I do this job and the way I try to do this job. I think that's a really important perspective to have because there is the attitude sometimes that if I have something, it means that somebody else doesn't have something. It's something that I'm super aware of because it's a way that like systems have tried to limit disabled people by saying we're too expensive. And so you can only have a bit of what you need. You know, you can have this this sliver of food because to give you too much would be too expensive. And I just think that's silly. We spend time and money on things that maybe don't really matter as much when we need to be devoting resources to digital equity, which for me, I think is the foundation of a lot of social service. Yeah, especially in today's day and age, when you see everything is connected through broadband or through digital systems, it's just so important. No, absolutely. Through just us, a lot of what we do right now is social services navigation for people. And the first thing we are doing is getting people signed up for the laptop credit and internet. Because Mm -hmm. if you go to look at applying for Medicaid, food stamps, WIC, any kind of social service, even local like churches and things that are doing community work, you have to have access to the internet. There's just no other way to turn it in. It's a byproduct of COVID, which has added access for a lot of people, but it's taken away access, I think, from some of our most disenfranchised folks. We were on a path towards everything being online pre-COVID, and then COVID sped everything up related to that. It it killed malls. (laughs) It it advanced a lot of things in a really positive way. Like I work primarily in telehealth and we saw some huge strides related to awareness and also just folks being willing to utilize that. But there are some things where you see the recreation of these existing inequalities just happen again in a digital space. It adds a new layer of trouble for some folks. I mean, you look at blind people or deaf people, They're struggling Mm -hmm. really with this new kind of digital age, or a lot of them are, because their digital equity is so far behind everyone else's. For instance, a Braille keyboard costs like minimum $3,000, and that is not something you can get insurance or the government to pay for. So when you're on disability, you get $800 a month, and you're not allowed to have more than $2,000 in your bank account. How are you supposed to have this technology you need? So then when all your doctor's forms go online and you can't see a keyboard, it gets frustrating working in the disability side of that. Daily work for you as a digital equity specialist, what does that look like? So digital equity specialist is a brand new title in a brand new field. So (laughs) this job, when I took it on, one of the benefits of working for the city is that it was kind of a choose your own adventure. So I'm fairly young into my professional kind of white collar side of my career. Mm -hmm. And uh, they told me you can be what we call a digital equity navigator, which is kind of the more common position where you're directly working with people, getting them on these benefits, trying to get the city on the same page in terms of like our equity policies, those more direct service stuff. Or on the flip side, it could be a really planning focused 
sort of role where you're looking at how do we do the most good? What are our goals for five years out or 10 years out? Mm -hmm. Because the city really didn't have anyone doing digital equity full time. Our director is uh, Rick Dietz. He's phenomenal and he's really involved in digital equity in our community, but he can only do so much. He is one man, whether he believes it or not. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there, there is finite like time and energy. So for me, for my day to day right now, I decided to really go the route of planning. I'm looking at the digital federal competitive grant. And we're looking at coalition building with local nonprofits so that we can create that sustainable change and do it in a way that citizens are going to trust it. We want to build like these sustainable digital communities. I do like that you touch upon deliberate planning because in my former position, I was a planning manager. And so planning is always very close to my heart because people expect things to happen And if they don't make a plan, then it's going to happen very poorly or it's not going to happen at all. So the idea of focusing directly on that digital equity planning as opposed to just like helping people directly, that is so important. And I really like that you point that out. And it's funny being ADHD in this position and like multiply neurodivergent because I like I having some of that poverty trauma myself and stuff planning to me is hard to focus on and I don't think linearly. So I'm always coming up with these big picture ideas of like, let's go after a federal grant and let's do tabling here. And, you know, I'm looking at the big picture, but like you've said, you have to have that A to B to C to really get things going. And it's a lesson I learned in school, but like, you really learn it in the (laughs) professional world when your boss says, how's that project going? And Mm -hmm. you have to think about what steps am I taking here? I'm just sort of throwing things at the wall. That isn't working. We talk about these plans and these ideas that we have, like we're going to promote digital equity and it's like, okay, how? That's the title of your plan. That's not step by step. You need to give us a breakdown. And I think that people fail to realize that. People try to do too much between service delivery and awareness and not realize that they're two totally separate things. So the work you guys are doing is awareness, right? You're probably listened to by a lot of like doctors and medical personnel and hospitalists, maybe some lawmakers. And that's like a really important area of awareness, but it's so different from what, for instance, my nonprofit does, which is telling people about these benefits, getting the people who need it on, and then just sharing it with the community. They're totally different levels. And so trying to write for both is something that I think I've seen a lot in the digital equity community. So what are some specific digital equity issues that you think Indiana is facing? I think it's different because I'm in Bloomington, which is a really like technology forward town, relatively speaking. Indiana is largely caught between this is a service we need to do everything from school to business to keeping in touch with grandma, but where does the money come from? And how do we know that the the city or the county or whoever's doing this is going to care in five years when it's not really politically, you know, charged and sexy, so to speak, right? When Washington's not throwing billions at it. And so the people like me may not exist or may not, may have to work on other things. That's the biggest problems I've seen from the community perspective. 
And so you have to look at not what's going to happen today and tomorrow. You need to look at what's going to happen five years in the future, a decade in the future, because otherwise we have all of these initiatives and all these exciting plans and they're just not useful in the long run. As I shared with you before we started recording, I was the daughter of a county fire chief and emergency manager. And so it was interesting to see a rural emergency preparedness plan that didn't include sustainability. Mm -hmm. And so you'd see them kind of having to reinvent the wheel every few years. And it wasn't until they really buckled down and decided how things were going to grow in a way that was organic and flexible, but dedicated and yeah, sustainable, right? Like I don't have a better (laughs) word for it other than it maintains. So are there any populations that you think are frequently overlooked when we talk about promoting health and digital equity? First and foremost, my mind is going to come to the disabled population because that's where I live. So my spinal injury was actually diagnosed through telehealth. It was diagnosed after three years of misdiagnoses and it saved my life. But at the time, you know, I had a computer that wasn't really working. I had internet that was cutting out because I couldn't pay my bills because it was a pandemic. So when we're looking at the disabled community, a lot of us are still so immunocompromised that COVID is still a big issue. And trying to meet these communities where they're at, having things like digital meetings, going into their residences and being respectful of their health boundaries, masking, gloves, you know, whatever they ask of you so that you can connect with them and ensure that they have what they need to not feel quite so isolated. The other big one is the indigenous communities. Most people don't know this, but their health care tends to run out. Their federal government funding runs out end of June. So from July through December, they have no access to health care. Getting Internet to these more rural areas that they live in and getting them access to our big health systems, I think, can make a huge difference in the overall well-being of these folks. I see us not reaching out to both communities and queer communities. Being able to open up to that conversation takes a different level of empathy and takes a different level of like self-awareness that I think that people in this field, not just digital equity, but equity in general, have trouble operating under. And it's like we talked earlier when you're talking about it from a macro level or like saying like we should promote digital equity. It's really easy to say that. It's a lot harder to take the steps that are necessary for that. There's a lot of moments where I or other advocates from like the state DEI office have had to just flat out make people uncomfortable because we're the only one representing that group in the room. And the whole group is at a consensus about something that's not going to work out for our community. The best thing I think we can do when we're talking about digital equity is not only make sure you bring the people in the room, but give them space to talk about their experiences first, because not all of us have that like chutzpah to speak up and out. And it's a scary thing. And I do like that you mentioned folks like tribes who are geographically isolated, uh, hopping back a couple topics. So telehealth is, I'm obviously an advocate for it. I think it's great, but it's a tool that isn't appropriate for every situation. We can make it work as needed in a lot of those situations where there's not another option. So 
teledentistry is a really good example of something that you see mostly practiced in tribal communities. That is not the ideal way to receive dental care. But when it's that or literally nothing, we have to be cognizant of the fact that like we are doing the best we can with the tools that we have. And audio only telehealth is another example of this, where obviously we want an AV appointment where we can have the audio visual elements. It just works better, we've found. But specifically for behavioral health, a lot of the time there are just folks who can't get access to a camera like we're talking on right now. And so doing an appointment over the phone, they have an option of no appointment or appointment over the phone. And Obviously, I'd like them to have the best quality of services, but between nothing and an appointment over the phone, I'm going to take the phone. Well, and then you think about people like you and me who are neurodiverse, especially for women, especially women of color. There's a real fine line between intelligent, well-educated patient and hysterical woman. Pardon me using that outdated and terrible term, but that's the way people look at you, especially in mental health. So for me, having complex PTSD, I have the ADHD, being able to have the video off and being able to stim or look around the room or not have to worry about eye contact makes me feel more comfortable and in control in the moment a lot of times. So it can be a matter of access, absolutely, but it can also be a matter of different needs that people have. I do like that you point that out because that isn't something that I'd considered before. And that's a very real consideration. Like I said, I am a telehealth advocate, but there are so many other, you can talk about digital equity and how it relates to telehealth all day, because there are just so many avenues where it can be used as a tool to help mitigate some of these issues. But at the same time, if we're not using it correctly, it's just going to recreate the same problems. Correct. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot with emerging technologies that are like really exciting But if we can't get folks who are geographically remote, folks who are impoverished, like historically disenfranchised populations, if we can't get them access to these technologies that would be life-saving, then we're just recreating the same issues. It goes back to the American industrial profit machine. Yeah. You know, why are Braille keyboards $3,000? Because somebody makes money off of them. Right. That's just the hard cold facts. So finding ways to provide these things and... Honestly, having companies and business owners and industrialists who care and are willing to do it more than just for the promo, but willing to do it because there's a social good to it. So have you seen any positive change in the digital equity space since you you started operating in this uh, sort of arena? Earlier on in my career, when I was an undergrad, I ended up doing tech support. And it was really funny. I did tech support for the New Mexico UCD, AUCD, American University Center on Disability, which if you're in the telehealth sphere, you should know about those. The New Mexico one actually primarily operates through telehealth, and we do autism diagnosis and follow-up throughout the entire state of New Mexico. Oh, very cool. Yeah, no, it was an awesome program, and a lot of what I did was helping manage those Zoom calls and making sure that practitioners had like a good view of patients and things like that. And so early on, I saw kind of the beginnings pre-pandemic. This was 2017 through 2019 that I worked in this job. And then I came back after grad school just earlier this year. And it's so, so encouraging to see the variety of voices being heard and included I think that earlier on in 
sort of this field, I saw a lot of, well, you just don't understand or it can't be done that way because it's medicine and we operate a certain way. And I am so excited to see practitioners breaking down that like barrier of ableism, internalized ableism in the field. I would wager that we didn't know that people would be okay with virtual dentistry and would take the time and energy to get it done Mm -hmm. until we had somebody in the community who said, it's this or nothing. This is the reality of my situation. So yeah, that's been incredibly encouraging to see folks get involved and really promote the voices of the people we're helping promote the patient view. That's awesome to hear. And I think without patient engagement, particularly from these communities that haven't historically had a seat at the table, I I don't feel like we're going to get the outcomes that we want. No, absolutely not. You can't reach a goal when your goal is dependent on another person's well-being if you don't ask them. That's kind of the first rule of equity. People say that they want disabled people to be able to go to school, right, over the computer or access jobs or access our benefits. But you can't really, we can't really do that until you ask us what we want, until you ask us what works for us. We don't include that. Or we didn't, and we're starting to. So we work a lot in rural populations. And we have seen in all of our programs, like be they telehealth or like in person, we don't get engagement and we don't get a good relationship with the community if we go in without an existing community partner you have to go in and see like okay who are we talking to in these communities who is already doing this work here how can we support them we don't want to go into a community where we're not part of we're not part of them and be like okay this is what we're gonna do now because that that's not the way that that should work (laughs) yes well and it's become so hard to live rural like i could talk about this forever But to sum it up, these folks work so hard just to keep what they have that they don't have the time and the energy right now to do anything that doesn't involve their direct survival, realistically. So unless you're going to come in and provide something that takes something off their plate or makes their life easier and you know how, and you can provide that fast, efficient, and sustainably, they just don't have the time and energy for that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not going to happen. And disabled people are largely the same way. It's so hard to be us under the current system that you're not going to get us to get involved unless you do something for us first. It's just the way it seems transactional, but it's just the way these communities operate. Yeah, but I think that does tie really well back to what we talked about earlier going into how everything is digital now and everything is online So these folks in these rural and geographically isolated populations who don't have access to broadband, who don't have access to these digital tools, that's just another thing that's there to make their lives more difficult. That's all they see it as because nobody asked them. Nobody said to them, hey, if you could not have to drive, I used to drive five hours one way for specialist care. Like that's how remote I grew up. You know, if somebody had said, you don't need to drive five hours to do this follow-up, how do you want to do it? Do you want a computer in your home? Do you have enough internet for that? But that doesn't happen. That's not the way we roll out service delivery. We just kind of give it out. Mm -hmm. And the federal government and the state government say, they'll say, you know, well, we had a listening session. We had had community outreach. To promote and ensure digital equity in the future. Just like you're saying, 
if you didn't we go have to somebody to focus focus and I trust, on actual mm-hmm. hard work then to bring in people and like me creating to sustainable really crafts and you're not so doing anything except ACP for that isn't going to be around forever and technology because it's moving so lightning fast right now it goes sort of in and out of usability again like within a year right we consider a computer old so you know i think we are doing really good work to get broadband to places and maybe it's just because we're early on but where i'm seeing the hitch and the giddy up is people are hesitant to give out something physical to a person it goes back to that like oh you know i don't have a new computer Right. And I work. So why should I give a disabled person who doesn't work a computer? Well, the answer, of course, is you should both have new computers and you have money with an option to spend on a new computer and they will never have money with an option to spend on a new computer. I also I worry about that. I worry about not having sustainable like hardware cycles. And then I worry about how the disabled community is being left out. I want us to do something about how much a Braille keyboard costs, how much a screen reader app costs. I want it to go so deep that we're doing something about folks like me who have to pay a lot of money to buy organizing apps and things to keep my brain together. Or I have to have like special glasses so that way I can type on a keyboard because I can't look down anymore with my neck. Those kinds of things should be accommodated and paid for if people need them. And I don't, I don't see that being included at all. You know, we get the standard little, oh, you know, we'll give an accommodation if you need it. When you put that up, that is a red flag. When you just put up, I'll provide an accommodation if you need it, contact us. Don't start there. Tell me what you're already doing to accommodate me. Give me an idea of what I have access to. And we can move on from there. Yeah. And it goes back to like when you're planning, making a sweeping statement is not enough. You need to make concrete and actionable steps for how you're going to make something happen. As opposed to saying, we will do this. Say, okay, how are you going to do it? And if you don't know how, ask the community you're trying to help. They probably have an idea. They can be so integral to that planning process. I mean... I was sitting in a state meeting and they were trying to figure out some digital equity stuff. And I was the only kind of out and open disabled person and advocate in the room. And they were like, you know, we don't know how to target disabled people. We don't know what you need or how to help. And I'm like, you have a school for the deaf and a school for the blind here in Indiana run by the state, if I'm not mistaken. Have you reached out to them? It's as simple as that. It's as simple as humility. It's that simple and that hard. Right. Just making sure that everyone does have that seat at the table that they're promised in these plans. Thank you so much for hopping on and joining me today. I really enjoyed chatting about some of the things that I really care about. (laughs) Me too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much. for listening to a virtual view. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? 
If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.